0: Here we are, going through Revelation, so we're now in chapter 14, we're going to go through 16 tonight. Um, I wanted to launch us off with two uh, just reminders about where all this is going. So first of all, uh, let's do the overview of the book, because it's been some time, we had our holiday breaks and everything, and here we are in chapter 14. So... John is a pastor, apparently, over the churches of seven cities. And the temperature of the culture has become such that Christianity was falling out of favor with the powers that be in the Roman Empire. Specifically, Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. And there, there was this pressure for people to conform to emperor worship. Because the emperors by this time had begun to spread the propaganda that they were more than just mere humans. And that therefore their policies must be obeyed and that they are the saviors of the world. The world is a better place because Caesar is king. And because to to have Caesar's favor on your city would bring lots of prosperity to your city. There was a lot of competition between the cities in Asia Minor to gain Caesar's favor and approval. So how do you gain Caesar's favor and approval? You build monuments to him. You build temples to him. You have parades on his birthday in which everybody offers incense to him. You do everything you can to kiss up to Caesar because you want his attention and you want the most prosperity of all the cities around you. The way our sports teams can be competitive, cities back then were competitive in that way. So the Christians fell into disfavor because they were considered the anchors dragging society's progress. We want progress. We want the favor of Caesar. We're doing all these new things. Come on, why aren't you people doing these things? So social slander and oppression begun, and even at times, sporadic persecution uh, to the point of martyrdom, or death, was beginning to happen to John's churches. And then John himself was plucked, Uh aha, we found a leader, let's put him on an island far away to show the other Christians what we, what Caesar does to your leaders. So this is the temperature that they're in and in the first so we open up the letter and we see John is on the island and there in his suffering and his separation he gets a vision Jesus appears to him and shows him all of his glory and John immediately begins writing to seven churches you won't believe what I saw and now here's the rest of what I saw the whole book is his vision of Jesus and then he goes in and he enters into the throne of heaven where there he sees not chaos not panic not oh my goodness goodness, Caesar is against Jesus. What are we going to do? No, he looks into heaven and he sees there a throne and one who is seated upon the throne in perfect poise and control. And he doesn't seem to be breaking a sweat at all. In fact, all of heaven seems to be moving on like they've already won with worship and they're not concerned in the least. And then John sees in the hand of the one on the throne, a scroll with seven seals. And we have identified it as the title deed to the earth, whom John then sees the lamb of God coming to take the scroll, whom is Jesus, the lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world. And this lamb opens up seal after seal and things begin to happen. And finally, he opens the seventh seal and John sees seven angels come forward with seven trumpets and each angel blows one of their trumpets in turn and we see more things happening on the earth until finally the seventh trumpet is blown and in Revelation 11 verse 15 we read the pronouncement the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his Christ so that the title deed had been opened And the rightful heir of the world read the royal pronouncement. The trumpets were blown to call attention to all of creation. Hey, your true king, not Caesar, the king of kings, is about to make a royal pronouncement. The seven trumpets are blown. There's silence in heaven. Everybody, uh, I misspoke. But the seven trumpets were blown, and all of creation was ready to receive the word and the announcements made. God wins. That ends at Revelation chapter 11. You go to Revelation chapter 12, and we now launch into rewind mode. So you see the whole scope of what's going to happen. The Lamb claims the earth, trumpets are blown, creation gets their attention, he claims it all, he comes and he judges and he rules. Then chapter 12, rewind. So, why is all that happening? What was going on behind the scenes of all of this? So chapter 12 opens up with... A woman in labor. She's screaming in horrendous pain. She's clothed with the cosmos. This is a beautiful woman in ugly agony. And there she delivers a child. And as the child's coming, a dragon hovers over her to consume the child. And just as a dragon is about to open his jaws to, to close them upon the child, the child is snatched out of the jaws and taken up into heaven. And we learn that this was Jesus... Born to the nation Israel and ascending to the father and the dragon Satan, the devil, who wanted to to grab him. And so what does Satan do? The dragon follows Jesus into heaven. War breaks out. Heaven kicks Satan out of heaven. That was redundant. And then he goes down to the earth, and he tries now to oppress Israel. Israel goes into hiding. He can't get Israel. God protects Israel. And then the dragon is furious. Chapter 13. He's standing on the shore. He's already struck out three failures. And now he's conjuring up, if you remember from last week, sort of his own baptism, if you will. An evil baptism. Where... Not Jesus the Christ is coming out of the waters to go save the world, but the beast, the anti-Christ, is coming out of the waters to go and grab and seize and possess everything in the world that he can. The dragon confers onto this beast all of his powers. So the, the beast now demands the worship and wonder of the world and those who don't worship and wonder over him, he persecutes and he puts to death by the sword. So he is violently trying to gain control of the world. And then he has a little prophet that rises up. And the prophet begins to do things making the beast look really amazing. Hey, did you guys know he can do this? Did you know this about him? Look what he's done for you. Think of just like a really uh, hyped up ambassador on steroids. He's just making this whole beast thing look really good. So the prophet is bringing everybody to the beast and he's even saying to the effect that look, the beast has brought us so much prosperity that if you want to buy or sell in our prosperous society, you need to take a mark on your hand or your forehead to identify, oh you're with us so the prophet begins this little tribe of very select few this club, excluding everyone who won't worship the beast, but bringing on only those who will and so we looked at last week the picture of we have our Christian Holy Trinity, Father, Son Holy Spirit And in Revelation, we have this unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and prophet. The holy trinity is bringing life and salvation to the world. This unholy trinity claims they are, but they're cutting people's heads off, and they're excluding others as they do so. And so we have this contrast. Truly, we have Christ, and then we have anti-Christ. He's moving against Christ. He's opposite of Christ. So what John is doing through this vision, the way he's compiling it and writing it is he wants his churches. Don't forget, John is a pastor, which means he has a real concern for the condition of his people in 90 AD. He's writing to them to comfort them in this time. And what is he doing as a prophet? He's doing what the prophets of the Old Testament did. He is warning of future destruction and promising future restoration. Destruction, restoration. Hey, Caesar says that his kingdom's eternal. He claims that he is the Lord and Savior of the world. He says he's given you everything. Guess what? Rome isn't all it's cracked up to be. Actually, it's got a lot of cracks, and it's going to crumble one day. The Warnings of destruction. It's not as invincible as you think. The promise of restoration. In place of this empire, you will have the kingdom of God. In place of Caesar, the lion, tearing people apart, you have Christ, the lamb, who is willing to give his life, to give blessing to his people. Very opposite kingdoms. Two different stories. This is John's mission. So, with that said, let's now read Revelation 14. So now the next step is, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion is Jerusalem, the Lamb is Jesus. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We've met the 144,000 in chapter 7. Here they are once again. And intentionally contrasting the worshipers of the beast who have the number 666 on them, we have the name of Jesus and the Father on their foreheads here. Intentionally contrasting. What we need to see is that God always has a remnant. No matter how dark and how dismal it gets, God is never without witness. He's never without people to do his work. We don't have to feel like we're going to lose. He's got people here, right there. So in verse 2, we read that a voice from heaven roars, and there's a voice, and it sounds like harpists playing on their harps, and then these 144,000 are singing a new song, and um, no one could learn the song except the 144,000. Verse 4 says, "...it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins." Uh, That probably is a symbol for their pure. Because the Old Testament always used sexuality as a metaphor for idolatry. Basically, you're cheating on God if you're with another God. So they use sex as a metaphor for that. By calling them virgins, it most likely isn't some weird, peculiar, way too much information detail about these people. It's probably more like they've been faithful to God. They haven't been with the beast whatsoever. So these, um, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb and in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless Verse six, three warnings. Now first in verse six, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on earth to every nation, tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, not the beast, him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. <coughs> worship God. Warning number two. Another angel followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Warning two. Babylon is fallen. What's Babylon? We actually haven't even been introduced to Babylon yet, but we will learn very shortly that Babylon is basically code for beast empire. The whole system of the beast is called Babylon. Well, Babylon is fallen, says the second warning. Okay, worship God, Babylon's fallen. What's the logical conclusion? Third warning another angel, verse 9, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name first warning worship God he made everything second warning Babylon's falling therefore third warning don't worship the beast because he falls worship God (laughs) the beast and his empire Babylon are going to burn forever and ever the smoke will keep pouring up Therefore, those who worship that will also burn, and their smoke will go up forever and ever. Now, there's a lot to be said about hell. However, there's nothing to be said about it here. I I just want you guys to be good Bible students and see that. Hell is not mentioned in this verse. Nowhere do you see the word. It's talking about the fall of the system and those who worship it will fall with it. Now in Isaiah chapter 32, it might be chapter 34. I apologize for not getting that one down. Um, it's one of those 30 chapters. It describes in this language of eternal smoke being used to describe the fall of Edom, Israel's neighbors, antagonistic neighbors, just to their East in the mountain range there. Well, Last I checked on Google Earth and being in Israel, smoke isn't still rising out of Edom. There's no smoke rising there. There's not burning forever and ever. In other words, what we have here is prophetic poetry in which it's simply describing the complete downfall of something. So, just so you can be proper Bible students and not jump immediately and assume, oh, this is talking about hell. It's simply saying those who worship the beast are going to be completely destroyed with the beast. Now, in verse 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints and John goes ahead and encourages his people to keep following Jesus. Now, a new vision. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud and seated on the white cloud one like A son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put your sickle, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped a harvest imagery. Is this a harvest of believers being gathered, or is it a harvest of the wicked to be removed from the earth? We're not told. Some point out that the phrase in the ESV, the earth is fully ripe, end of verse 15, uh, should read overly ripe, and that this is rotten harvest. Um, Others think that that's making too much of the Greek. So we don't know for sure who is being harvested here. But it's the second harvest that follows this that gets the most attention. So in verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to put uh, to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So first harvest was a wheat harvest. This harvest is a grape harvest. Verse 19. You know what you do with grapes and you harvest them, right? Back in this culture, this is where you get the number one beverage in the whole world at the time. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Okay, so here you have a wine press, which was usually cut a a little like basin, and there would be a hole at the bottom of the basin in which um, the wine would drip, or the grape juice would drip into containers. So you have this big... Wine press basin, you throw the grapes in there and people start stomping on it and having a good dance party <laughs> while well, they're making grape juice and the grape juice would flow down into the containers below it. Well, imagine that happening and the basin has labeled on it the wrath of God. So the image is that the feet coming down on the grapes are the wrath pressing down on those harvested from the earth. This is a terrifying picture. This isn't the Jesus loves me, this I know. For the what Bible told me so, not Revelation. Um, We'll get into this a little bit more. So verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for roughly 200 miles That's 600 stadia, about 200 miles. Uh, Quick fact, north to south, they measured, the ancients estimated that Israel was close to 200 miles, so it might just be a reference to the whole land. It was flowing with the blood of these grapes. How high? Up to the horse's bridle? Well, that's either saying literally there's a river of this going that high for 200 miles, which is unfathomable, Or it's talking about as you're pressing in the wine press, the splatter of such activity is going up that high. It's unclear. We usually read this to see this as judgment on the wicked. However, I read from a very authoritative, at least in the eyes of most of the church, an authoritative theologian who uniquely proposes that this is actually a picture of the judgment on... Not judgment. This is a picture of the persecution by the wicked on the believers. And he has a couple of actually very interesting reasons for that. But... I don't want to get into it too much because he's not necessarily supported by a ton of people. But it should be noticed that it does say this is happening outside the city. The very place where Stephen was martyred, outside the city. The place where Jesus was crucified, outside the city. That's a phrase which is associated with Christians being killed. So he sees this as the blood of the saints coming out. Well, what happens with this pressed grape juice? It goes, in our next chapter, it goes into bulls, which are then poured out upon the people to judge them. Why are they being judged? According to this interpretation, it's because of the earth's persecution of believers and the righteous that the judgment is being poured out upon them. Their blood that they shed is now being poured out upon them and they're suffering for it. So, in other words, the tables have turned. Very interesting, and it seems to fit the context interpretation, but then again... You have this weird thing with the vision. Well, why are angels trampling the wine press? You know, so you're not quite sure what is, how to make sense of that. But I thought that was interesting and how to mention it. All right. So what we've seen is three warnings from three angels. And now two visions of harvest. Chapter 15. Get ready. We go to the Exodus. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues linked to the Exodus story, the 10 plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. So we've seen seven seals opened, judgment. We've seen seven trumpets blown, judgment. Now we're going to see seven bowls poured out, the last judgment. Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses. Remember, we're going back to the Exodus, the servant of God and the song of the lamb, Jesus, but it's also conjuring the lamb that was slaughtered at the Passover in which the Israelites were freed from Egypt. And they sang, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So the picture we have here, notice that they're, behind, they're standing on the side of the sea, very interestingly described sea, it looks like a, a sea of glass mingled with fire, but don't miss the connection of plagues, sea, song of Moses, and they're standing on the side of the sea, and they conquered the beast. Here is a very clear retelling of the Exodus. You have the plagues. The beast would be Pharaoh and his oppressive system persecuting the righteous. And the sea is them on the other side. They went through the Red Sea and that's when they were freed from and conquered Pharaoh who went into the sea and was drowned. And then they're singing the song of Moses. If that's not direct enough for you, I don't know what else can be. And Because remember, Moses and Miriam led the Israelites into song on the other side of the Red Sea. And so there they are singing. So John is saying, hey, this is what God's up to. Evil will be great. But it was great against Israel too. And God delivered them and gave them a new land. God is going to do the same thing again. Jesus is our Moses. He's leading us to the new land, which we will read about in Revelation 21 and 22. The new heaven and new earth. Now, in verse 5, it gets real. After this I looked. So we're now going to zoom in on the plagues. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. which by the way, that sanctuary, the tabernacle was built after their exodus. So it's another illusion. Um out of that sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So these angels are dressed like priests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels uh, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Remember when the tabernacle was built, the glory of God came and filled the tabernacle in a cloud, sometimes smoke. It was the same concept, the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So there's your prelude to the looming doom ahead. Notice that the golden bowls in verse 7 are filled with the wrath of God. What was the wine press named? The wrath of God. So the trampling of it. What is in these bowls, it seems to, though it doesn't say this directly, it seems to be a connection that what was pressed from the harvested grapes is now, the bowls are now filled with that. And that's what's going to be poured out upon the earth. Then I heard chapter 16 A loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Pause. So we had the seven seals opened. We know what those were because there was a scroll. And to open the title deed of the earth, you had to open the seals. Then the title deed is read. The lamb now owns the world. Well... The trumpets were blown. We know what trumpets are for. The Israelites used trumpets to alert people to something, either a royal pronouncement or an enemy is invaded, gathered the troops. The trumpets had uses. They also signaled the coming of the Sabbath or the new year. But what about the bulls? I did a lot of reading, and I couldn't really find good connections to what the bulls would have symbolized, other than they're just vessels to pour stuff out. <laughs> Until I started thinking back into Leviticus. And that's where, similar to the picture here, the priests would take the blood from the lamb or the ram or the bull, depending on the sacrifice, and they would fill it in a bowl, and then they would dip with their fingers into the bloody bowl. "...onto the horns of the altar, and then when they were done sacrificing the animal, they would take the bull, and uh, not the animal bull, but the vessel bull, and pour it at the base of the altar." And that's the closest thing I could think of to the Old Testament that John might be mimicking by saying these bowls are being poured out. But here was what was crazy. I don't know what to do with it, so I'm throwing it to you. You can eat it and digest it and either you know let it be good or bad to your stomach. Um, but the only sacrifices that mentioned the pouring of blood at the base, all of them threw the blood, but, but only one of them poured the blood and it was the sin offering. The one that you gave when seeking forgiveness for one's sins. Now, I don't know if there's a connection between sin offering and what the angels are pouring out upon the earth, but if there is a connection, this is raising all kinds of questions about what does it mean God's pouring out a sin offering upon the people of the earth? Is this him offering them forgiveness? Is he saying that they're forgiven? Well, that means we're universalists. That wouldn't make sense. Or is he making an offering because they wouldn't accept Jesus's? I don't know. You know, what is that saying? And we don't even know if there's a connection. So, if you lost me, just come back now. We're done. But um, if you found that interesting, go and read up on it. You're on your own and think about it some. Just get some ice for your head. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. The seven bulls are now poured. So verse 2, The first angel went and poured out his bull on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Each of these plagues are mimicking a plague from Egypt. Remember Pharaoh's... um, People got boils from the plagues. So are these people. Um, by the way, that was the first plague in which the priests themselves were affected by Moses' plagues. So it was the first one that got the priests thinking, yeah, this God's probably a little better than us. <laughs> uh, the second, in verse 4, uh, 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. You may remember the seven trumpets I mentioned this then, mention it again uh, that the seven bulls parallel the trumpets in what they affect Earth, sea, sky, so on. They parallel each other. So Verse four, the third angel poured out his bull into the rivers and into the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you a holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. I can almost hear a ha ha. It is what they deserve. Remember, that's an angel saying that. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. No, they cursed him instead. So now there's a response to God in these judgments. They they now know who they're reckoning with. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Touch me now, beast. It's like he's getting his own power there. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People nod their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven and the pain and their sores for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You see, God's trying to get them to repent, but they won't. They gnawed their tongues because of the darkness? Really? Well, in the Egyptian plagues it said that there was a darkness that could be felt. Well, this is a darkness that they're feeling and they're gnawing their tongues over. I don't know how that works scientifically, but remember this is vision, so it could just be crazy, like, just to get you to wake up. (laughs) Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Remember the Red Sea was dried up? Well, different water now the Euphrates being dried up. And its water was dried up to pave and prepare the way for the kings from the east. Apparently these kings are not in league with the beast. Whoever these kings of the east are, if it's a modern context, you could say that's China, Japan, India, maybe parts of Russia. The Russia likes to get in everybody's business, so who knows. But um, <laughs> political jokes. Yeah. I'm apparently happy you don't read the news. I don't know. Okay. Um, but the kings from the east are coming. In the Roman times, this was the, the dreaded Parthians who had an excellent cavalry, or an excellent with the bow and arrow. So they were actually feared. The Parthians, to say Parthian is what it would be in America to say Isis. It was that kind of fear that the Parthians instilled upon the Romans. So... There are your two contexts. And I saw verse 13 coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, our unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs. These frogs are demonic spirits hopping around performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty Frogs. Well, that was the second plague in Egypt. Frogs. Behold, verse 15, John enters this. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Now, back to his, it was like a little parenthetical, like, come on, guys, just stay awake, because this is serious. Then he goes back to the three frogs they assembled them, the kings, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Kind of misleading when you read that, because in Hebrew it's actually called Megiddo. Uh, Armageddon is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Megiddo. So, Armageddon is um, Mount of Megiddo. That's, that's what it translates as. So, Megiddo, we know what that, that's an actual place on the map. You can go in, in your Bible map, go, there is Megiddo northeast part of uh, northwest part of Israel on the main highway but we'll get into that in a minute then verse 17 oh so that's where okay so armageddon is coming together world war 1 war to end all wars ha ah, you're right world war 2 that was even bigger world war 3 all the kings of the earth are gathering here for war And some people connect the shedding of blood 200 miles up to the horse's bridle over in chapter 14 as a description to Armageddon and the bloodbath that that will be. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. So here we're at the end. This episode, when, we, when you read chapter 19, which we'll get to in the future, when Jesus comes on the white horse to the earth, that happens here. We just don't read about it till chapter 19. So he comes. It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. Man, what a reception, huh? All the kings of the earth are gathered, thinking that they're going to fight each other to be the true king of kings. And then Jesus is like, you didn't really count me in, guys, did you? Here I am. And he's got the hosts of angels behind him and saints. And like, we're like, yeah, you guys want to take this on or what? Um, (laughs) peels of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth so great was that earthquake verse 19 the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath it looks like a little bit of that wine was saved just for Babylon and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plagues of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So, End there and realize that next week in chapter seven, I'm not, I'm not done, so don't start packing up. Um, <laughs> chapter seventeen is going to launch into another behind the scenes episode. So we're at the end here in chapter sixteen. We're at the very Jesus is here, the kingdoms going to be established. Um, I'll remind you that next week. But so we we, we read through all of this. And we see this judgment and this wrath and the real culmination seems to be Armageddon where enough evil's been happening that finally all the evil's just going to get together so that they can just be dealt with with one blow. Armageddon seems to be the climax of everything in the book, evil-wise, of everything in the book of Revelation just kind of like filth, just dripping down into a common cesspool. And here it is, the Valley of Megiddo is where it's all collecting. Armageddon has drawn so much creative imagination from people across our culture. Armageddon is code word for disaster. Uh, I was joking, probably because it's in my mind. I was telling the worship team as we were getting ready for church that I had to... um, um, I had to negotiate potential Armageddon last night with my daughter. <laughs> she was screaming like you can 't believe and you know it felt like Armageddon. What does that mean does it mean like everyone was drawing swords and like no it doesn 't mean that, but it means like things are getting out of hand real quick that's you know we use Armageddon around and there 's movies made of like these epic disasters, and we have these amazing like crazy things like russia 's going to come and the u s is going to come and and it 's all going to converge in the the Middle East, and Israel's going like, to be there, and it's going to be so exciting and thrilling. And Armageddon is just fascinating. I remember going to the Valley of Megiddo in Israel. When you tour, you go there. In fact, it's the most visited site in Israel. That's how obsessed and fascinated humans are with Armageddon. And you look out. You go to the top of the, the little mound there, and you look out, and you're like, wow, this valley. And you're trying to imagine like a river of blood, you know, as high as a horse's bridle and people slaying each other, the whole world just this like global death match. And you're just like in awe as you're looking at it. And we look at Armageddon as the sign that the end of the end of the end is here. Because if Jesus doesn't intervene in Armageddon, surely humans will obliterate everything. So Jesus has to intervene. And so we look at Armageddon and we say, Oh yeah, that's good stuff. Have you ever heard or caught yourself saying something to the effect of, Oh, praise the Lord! When you get news that an earthquake has demolished a whole city, or that a tidal wave is swept through and people have lost family members and they still don't know where people are. Or tensions are stirring up in the Middle East and some soldiers have been killed and we know, oh, things are happening. The pot's getting stirred. I don't know if you've said it, thought it, heard it. I have. Wow, these are exciting times. Praise the Lord. Jesus is on his way. Amen. Pray... Pr- Praise the Lord because people are dying. Yay God. Kill some more so you can come back. Have you ever thought about how sick that sounds? That's what happens when we put Armageddon in the forefront. And we say, alright, bring it on, Armageddon. It's almost as if The rapture, being sucked into heaven, has happened to us before it's happened, like a kind of pre rapture thing. Because we've removed ourselves from the condition of humanity, knowing I won't be here, it doesn't bother me. And by disassociating ourselves with our fellow neighbors, brothers, and sisters, sometimes we can hear about things and not feel the pain because we're already gone. We're already already thinking, I'm out of here. Doesn't matter to me. Feel your seat right now. Are you here? (laughs) You're not raptured. And there are real people that hurt and suffer over real events. Today, there will be news tomorrow, and in the months to come, we're going to hear more and more. And there's going to be this reaction in some. Praise Jesus, he's almost here. But some of us will realize we're still here and I hurt for what's going on around the world. It makes me wonder, do we want Armageddon to happen? Is that like a desire that we have? We go around saying, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. Does Armageddon have to happen before Jesus returns? Like, is is this some sort of locked script that can't be changed? Is this sealing the fate? Is this fatalism, determinism? Use your philosophical word. Is this mean it's gonna happen? There will be Armageddon. Therefore, everybody, if we want Jesus to come back, root it on. Let's cheer it on that the world's getting more violent and more scary and people at each other's throats, because yes, it means that the clock has almost ran up. Is that what Revelation's supposed to be? Is this fatalism? It has to happen. What, what, what if this was John being a prophet and a pastor? What if this was John saying, guys, here's a conceivable path of what the future could look like or would look like or should look like if we listen to the croaking frogs that are going out around the whole world stimulating, seducing, and arousing people to this idea that violence will end the world problems. You know what they called World War I? The war to end all wars. Megiddo, it's an actual mound. It's about 200 feet high. It's an artificial mound. It's not a hill. It's a mound because Megiddo was a city that was destroyed 26 times. That's why it mounded up. You just keep building on the ruins. 26 times. Why? Megiddo was located on what's called the Via Maris. That's the way of the sea. It was the main highway. Think... For us, I guess that's the 91. If you're in Orange County, it's the 405. It's the main highway connecting north Babylon, Assyria, with south Egypt and Israel in between. Megiddo right on this road. So it was a big stopping place. And because of its big, vast plain and the mountains over there with it, it became a prime spot for trading and, if you're an enemy, for conquering. Because you want Megiddo. So, what if Megiddo, talking about Armageddon, wasn't saying, hey, this is going to happen, everyone, so get excited when we get closer to Armageddon. What if actually the point was to say something like Omaha Beach? <coughs> What's Omaha Beach? That's part of the Battle of Normandy when the Allies landed to start facing the Axis powers, Nazi Germany and France. That's when we invaded Europe. Omaha Beach. Now, when I say Omaha Beach, are you thinking picnic, beach balls, surfing? You are thinking of some of the grossest warfare that's happened on the face of the earth. Maybe that's what Armageddon is supposed to be saying. It's a symbol for endless, brutal warfare. It's a symbol for what happens when humans and the world choose not to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, but to listen to the voices of the croaking frogs that have been sent to seduce the kings of the world. Armageddon is what happens when we continue to sin and we continue to do our thing and we continue to make the universe our center. The the unholy trinity, the three frogs coming out of their mouths. You have a dragon. We were told in chapter 12, he was the one who accuses the saints day and night. He's the slanderer, the beast. He's the one who's using violence to bring people to worship him. If you don't worship me, you're being executed. I'm controlling with the sword. The prophet He's the one who was making everybody worship or not get any of the goods. Exclusion, tribalism. Maybe this is what's happening is every time we slander people, speak ill or accuse, every time that we choose violence as the proper reaction to what people do to us or who people who stand in our way or threaten our safety or exclusion, you don't look like us, you don't think like us, you don't believe like us. Every time we act one of these paths, we're listening to the croaks of the frogs and we are being drawn to the cesspool of Armageddon. We are buying into the lie that this is the way the world works and this is the way to fix our problems. We talked last week about the Trinity and how this is the great being of God, one God in three relations. And if you didn't if you weren't here last week, please listen. I think it's really, really huge for us to get that the father, the son, the Holy spirit are pouring constantly into each other themselves. That the father is self emptying into the son and the son is self emptying into the father and the energy. in between this love selfless, sacrificial self emptying is the Holy spirit. And then the Holy spirit self emptying into the son and the son self emptying into the Holy spirit. And the energy between them is the father and the Holy spirit and the father are self emptying into each other. And the energy between them is called the son. And so you have have not just father son spirit but you also have father son spirit interacting in this love relationship this, re- this continual pouring into each other so you have this dynamic pulsating energy this relationship where love is constantly flowing in and out of them and it's moving eternally and forever and that is the divine dance it's been called historically the divine dance which we're invited into the party of God which he created everything to participate in he's invited us into this This and that is, those who live in this divine dance, who receive the flow of God's love in and through them as part of what's going on in the Trinity, they become the healers, the peacemakers of the world. But those that follow the way of this other Trinity, this anti-Trinity, this anti-Christ... They're trying not to self-empty into each other, but they're trying to get the entire cosmos to come into their orb and to orbit them, their gravitational pull. So that when we talk about the judgment of God, sometimes we're super pity, uh, pity, petty, and we think of this God who's grumpy up there, right? And he's like, why don't people believe in me? Why don't people, I gave them only ten rules. Why can't they keep them? You know, and he's like, I'm just gonna, that's it. Time's up. Great. I can't wait. And pour out the bulls. Teach them all a lesson. And sometimes we think of God that way. When really, what we need to understand is that sin is not something we've established just to simply say, well, to prove that you're a follower of Jesus, you won't sin. Or, well, so that you don't hurt God, we call these things sin. No, 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 no. Sin is what happens when we choose not to live in that divine dance, that eternal flow of love, when we stop letting God enter into us and come through us. Sin is what happens when we pull out of that and we listen instead to the croaking frogs and follow the way of the world. 1 John 2.16. And what happens in judgment isn't God just reacting silly, like, I can't believe you did that, Paul. Here's judgment, punishment. Sin. We're not punished for our sins. We're punished by our sins. My own act of sin brings my own judgment on me so that you could say sin boomerangs on the one who threw it. And why shouldn't sin boomerang on you? If you are making the cosmos orbit around you, you're the center of gravity, everything that's flying around your life should come back to you because you have designed your universe to be that way. So when we talk about this judgment, this is what humans have brought on themselves by rejecting God. You think of Coyote and Roadrunner? Does the roadrunner ever once turn around and judge the coyote and say, the roadrunner keeps doing what he does so well, and every time the coyote's up to mischief, it backfires on himself. Is that maybe what the picture of the wine press and the bowls is meant to symbolize? That there's a connection between wickedness and judgment? That it is the wicked's own actions that are coming back upon them? It is what Paul teaches us in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, don't be mocked. or don't, God cannot be mocked. Don't be deceived. He will reap what he sows. Or in other words, you sleep in the bed that you make. <clears throat> what you throw will come back to you. And then he goes on to say, if you, reap, if you sow in the flesh, you will reap corruption. You sow in the spirit, you will reap life. Brothers and sisters... Is it possible that the frogs are trying, they're croaking in our midst today to get us to sow to destruction, that we reap destruction? And all the while God's saying, hey, I'm the real Trinity. Sow and dance with me and you will reap life. And you will not be an encourager of Armageddon, but the healer of it. And maybe, even maybe, the church can show the world a better way Than slander, violence, and exclusion. Last thing, why frogs? I thought that was so silly. I always thought, like, really frogs? Like, John, is that the, or, you know, did John, is that really what you saw? Could Jesus not show you something better than frogs? Like, come on, man, give us something, like, crazy. These are demonic spirits. A little frog? Well, let's think about it for a second. Frogs hop, the Trinity dances. That's one graceful versus clumsy difference. You notice that the saints always sing, even twice in our own passage. Frogs croak. Frogs are also connected to the Exodus story, so that would be a fitting thing. But here's what I did with some digging. Frogs happen to be prolific reproducers. In fact, the Egyptians worshiped a goddess called Heket, who body of a woman, head of a frog, and guess what she was the goddess of? Fertility, reproduction. And it was just so obvious to me. The deceiving spirits of slander, of exclusion, of violence self-replicate wherever they go. We don't have to encourage people to listen to these croaking voices. One person adopts it, and an entire nation goes crazy about it. We need to be careful that we aren't producing more of these croaks. So, brothers and sisters, let's sing with the lamb, rather than croak with the frogs. (laughs) You now know what a croaker sounds like, and where a croaker ends up. When you hear someone croak, remind them of who God is, the one God with three endless loving relations, and that you, this brother, or sister, is invited into that dance.